I think we're so afraid to let, as a culture, to let children think, you know? And mm-hmm. so, because you can't put that on a test question. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're, as homeschoolers, we have the amazing opportunity to allow them to express their thoughts and opinions about these people that live before us. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Hey everyone, the Charlotte Mason Inspired Online Conference wrapped up in late June, so this will be the last time I talk about it, at least for now. That being said, the recorded audio and video is still available for this event, and the whole package is just $25. These recordings include teachings and workshops given by over 20 homeschooling experts. If you missed out on the conference but are still interested, please check out the link in the show notes of this episode, our webpage, or our social media pages. All right, today we're joined by Julie Ross to talk about history. Julie has been a Charlotte Mason homeschool mom for over 20 years. And during that time, she's done a lot of stuff, including developing a curriculum, a gentle feast, being an assistant director of a homeschooling academy, and hosting her own podcast, The Charlotte Mason Show. While she's not managing any of those things, she's homeschooling the children she still has at home that are school age. Julie is a lover of history, so her insights were invaluable for both Crystal and I during this episode, and we enjoyed the time we got to spend with her. If you're interested in her curriculum, you should find your way to agentlefeast.com. And you should also give her podcast a listen. Now, I've said enough, so on to the show. Well, one of the questions we like to start out with is, how did you find Charlotte Mason? Yeah, so I was actually a public school teacher. And I, at my church, they had a library. And one of the books that was kind of sitting in the middle one day was For the Children's Sake. By Susan C. from Macaulay, and I saw it, and I was like, "Well, I'm a teacher, and this book's about educating children. I'm sure this will be interesting." So I just picked it up and took it home, and I literally like stayed up all night long, (laughs) and I was like sobbing because it was such a beautiful picture of what education could be, and I knew I could not give the kids in my class this kind of education within the constraints of our standards and testing and things like that. And it broke my heart. I taught in a really um, disadvantaged school and I saw how this beautiful method of education could really enrich their lives, but Mm. I wasn't able to give that to them. And so that really just set me on a whole different course. Um, I ended up leaving public school at the end of that year, helped start a private Christian school, then started homeschooling my own kids. So it was kind of a weird way to kind of get into (laughs) her teachings. And when I started homeschooling my own kids, you know, I had read that book and it, it really is so inspiring, but there's not a whole lot of like daily practical, here's how you actually do this on Monday stuff Mm -hmm. in there. (laughs) And so I was very lost and just fumbling along, I think for a really long time, it was really hard for me to get out of like the public teacher mindset. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the first couple of years of homeschooling, we had our little calendar and we said the pledge to the flag and (laughs) we had our little desks and like all the stuff. I was like, oh, I can Mm -hmm. totally do both of these things. I can try to, you know, teach the way this book was saying, and I can do my little teacher stuff. And, you know, but, um, I was, my kids were not learning and our family didn't have the culture that I wanted. And so then I 
was like, okay, I just need to deep dive into what Charlotte Mason actually had to say. <laughs> and there wasn't a ton of resources back then. I mean, this was 20 years ago. Gosh, I feel so old. Um, <laughs> but I was able to find those little pink books and just dive into it and just kind of finding my way and finding like-minded people along the way mm. um, to help. So very cool. Yeah, how, how old are your children now? Um, 1916, 12, 10, and 9. Okay. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. A, that's awesome. You've got you've got a wide range. Yes. So two who are kind of off. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, I, ma- I made it to the finish line. <laughs> nice. Three more to go. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. But, but it is really awesome, like, getting to that point because it's like, I tell you all the time, like it really does take a lot of faith to educate your children in this yeah. way because it's not a daily like, oh, let me check your answers. You got nine out of ten right. I am teaching you and I'm effective <laughs> and yay, me, awesome homeschool mom. Like that fruit sometimes takes years to yeah. see in your kids. And so, but now having somewhat adult children, I can <laughs> see that fruit and it makes it a little bit easier to homeschool the other ones, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. It, it does for sure. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. If, if you can see what the results will be if you continue doing the thing you're doing, then it makes it easier to be like, okay, this is good. This is right. And it does work. Because I didn't really know anybody that homeschooled this way at all. Mm-hmm. I knew people who homeschooled in a traditional way. Sure. And... I saw the difference just homeschooling in general made in their mm-hmm. children. And that's what drew me to homeschooling to begin with. But like, I, I mean, it was in the past five such years that I found other like-minded homeschooling families. So hmm. it's hard when you're on your own. <laughs> kind yeah. of. I, I can yeah. believe that. Well, and it seems like there's been, there's been a bit of a revival in the homeschooling really community yeah. for Charlotte Mason, which is exciting. That's, that's exciting oh, yeah, for, for sure us who are getting into it. It's exciting to think about the next generation of, mm, yeah. of moms who are, who are diving into that. So that's cool. Well, and it's also, we've heard for the children's sake so many times and, <laughs> and it's the, it's the idea that, or it's the thing that Charlotte Mason says is if you give somebody an idea, it can change their lives. Mm, and that, mm. that revolutionized your life. Yeah. For sure. And this method of education really changed me too as a person. Because mm. I've always loved learning and learning a, a song alongside my kids was fantastic. But it wasn't, I didn't really realize what I was missing until I had it. So once I started, you know, diving more into these living books and studying nature, and once you see things differently, which is what she teaches you how to do is observe and really appreciate beauty, you can't unsee it. And so then it's finding beauty all around you all the time. And it really does change who you are. It, yeah, it, it really does. I can see that. And, and the thing is, is it changes not only who you are, but it changes how you, how you do everything mm-hmm. and, and how you see everything, whether it be politics or church or nature itself or learning or jobs or family, it, it all, it all changes. And it comes down to her idea that, you know, education it's a life, it's a living thing, and it's yeah. always going to be growing and changing those ideas inside of you will always, doesn't matter if you're a child or you're the parent homeschooling, right? Those ideas, yeah. once they take root, are going to change you. Yeah, which is very exciting. Cool. 
Yes. <laughs> so a little bit of a tangent. Once you, you started homeschooling and started doing these things, you, you said you started a school and you started homeschooling. Mm -hmm. What are you doing right now in the Charlotte Mason community? Um, I write a curriculum called A Gentle Feast, and it is for grades 1 through 12, all subjects except math, because I would never touch that with a template. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um, and that kind of grew out of what I was doing with my own kids and how to take it this beautiful philosophy and make it, okay, what do I do on Monday? Yeah. How do I structure my day? What are the living books and the resources? And in my mind, it was always like, oh, well, this is so like easy. Like, can't everybody just, you know, find all these resources and put them all together? And, you know, my <laughs> friends were like, no, we can't. Or this will take way too much time. You should really sell this. I'm like, no one's going to want to buy this. And they're like, well, you know, just see. And it was just really, it's been amazing to see just the interest and mm. very humbling. And I'm very honored just that people would entrust me with um, providing resources to educate their children. I take it very seriously. Yeah, it's been a crazy ride, but I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> We're, we're kind of the same way. We're like, well, who on earth is wanting to listen to us <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> talk about this? But people keep listening, so we yes. just keep doing it. And yes. And so I have a podcast, too, The Charlotte Mason Show, and that started this year as well. And the same thing. I can't even listen to the episodes after they air because my <laughs> voice gives me <laughs> the heebie-jeebies. So <laughs> it's like, okay, if other people want to listen to me, great. <laughs> I, I haven't listened to ours. But but doing all of these chapters, especially these part five chapters, there are so many tidbits that I just need to go back and <laughs> actually take notes while I'm talking. And <laughs> yeah, so yeah, we've had a lot of fun for the last. Gosh, how many? How many has it been? All of our five. You're almost getting to the end here. We're getting close. <laughs> like twelve or thirteen episodes that have been with. With like legitimate people who know how to do things, <laughs> and it's been it's been fun to talk to these people who have been in and around the Charlotte Mason community for a long time and educating mm -hmm. their children for a long time and and you know dive into this stuff with with those people because I, I mean I've been I've been thinking about this stuff for what a year and a half now <laughs> and and that's it. I, yeah. <laughs> I, so it's been it's been a lot of fun to to hear to hear years of wisdom come from the people that that we've had as guests. Well, I feel like that with my show. Like I get inspired every time I talk to somebody. Like I'm like, oh, now I want to try this. Or this is so, like, <laughs> and, and you know, I don't think you. I don't ever want to be at a place where I'm stale. Right. And so there's always new things to learn and new things to try. And that's what's really so neat about it it's not like okay i've i've put our family into this little box and we're going to check it all off and we're done and it's like no there's all like <laughs> i tell people like i've been doing this for 20 years and i still am learning how to do things differently or add things in or try different parts of the feast like you don't have to do it all perfectly day one <laughs> right. like, 20 years in, i'm still figuring it out you know so <laughs> yeah that's yeah and that is encouraging for like people like me who are starting out where <laughs> I don't have to do all the things all the time perfectly. Right. So yeah, grow, grow and change and your kids will grow and change alongside of you. So, mm -hmm. all right. Now real quick, what was For the sure. name of your show again? Oh, it's called the Charlotte Mason show. Okay. That should have been easy to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Very catchy. <laughs> 
All right. I like it. <laughs> well, I'm excited to talk about history. Yeah. Because this is my favorite subject. It's always been my favorite subject since I was a little child. My dad is a history lover and always reads biographies and war books and things. <laughs> and so as a child, it was always like, hey, I'm reading about such and such. And even though my dad was a blue collar worker, like his and I was, you know, went to public school and sadly had very poor history classes, I still was captured by it, by him. And I think that relates to Charlotte Mason's whole concept of education is an atmosphere, like what we're passionate about and what we're talking about. um, That becomes part of our family culture and our kids pick up on that way more sometimes than the books and the things that we choose for our (laughs) curriculum. Um, Our family vacations were always to historic places. And most of the time that was my choice. It was like, do you want to go to a amusement park or do you want to go to Plymouth Rock? I'm like, Plymouth Rock. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. So are you, are you kind of on the East coast then or? Yes. Okay. (laughs) I'm just saying you got all those battlegrounds and. Oh yeah. It's, it's a rich treasure store of places to go, especially for early American history. Yeah. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm in South Carolina. So Charleston, I mean, there's some buildings from the 1600s and it's really neat. That's really cool. We were in, we lived in Winchester, Virginia for a couple of years. Okay. And you know, that city was, uh, it was laid out by George Washington. As the surveyor. Yeah. George yeah, Washington uh-huh. was the surveyor of the city. It's like, what? The, so it's crazy. <laughs> Did you go to Colonial Williamsburg by any chance? Yes. My, my parents um, <laughs> have taken us there even when I was in school or in back, still living at home. And so that's some place yeah. that we've been a lot. Yeah. yeah, it's one of our favorite places. It's really fun. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's really so I'm cool. excited to talk about talk about this. It's great, and I love the way she approaches history too. So it's very different than most other. It approaches, is. So. I, so I will say i i took some I took some college courses, uh, some some history electives when I was in college, and I took them at a community college. So the the professor I took it from was there not to make money, but, but because she loved teaching mm-hmm. and she loved teaching yes. history. And so I, she did ancient history. It was like history of the world's part, part, parts one and two, which mm-hmm. went from whatever we talked about at creation all the way to whatever modern is. And it was a lot of fun to be in her class because a lot like what Charlotte Mason said, she was oh so interested in the story. She was interested in, mm-hmm. in what happened and why and the relationships mm-hmm. that people had and, and all of that. She wasn't interested in the dates and mm-hmm. the right. names of the battles. So as, as I was reading through this, it, it reminded me a lot of that class because it was so much fun to just sit and, and listen to her lecture about those things and then, and then go and read the books she had us read because she had us read, I think what I would call living books. I'd have to go back to, that curriculum and or the syllabus and C, but, but yeah, so it reminded me of that class, which was fun. Mm-hmm. And oh, I've, you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I know one. I've never really been a history guy in, until, until that class. Cause every other history class, I'm, you know, I was homeschooled, but sorry, mom, that it wasn't, you know, she <laughs> <Yes>. tried, <laughs> but, but yeah, anyway, it was the, uh, miserable little chronicle of feuds, battles and death yes. presented to you by the way of, a rain. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, she starts out here and 
we're recording this slightly out of out of order. We haven't actually recorded the geography chapter yet. So she says, oh, okay. much that has been said about the teaching of geography <laughs> applies equally to that of history. So to our listeners, I'm sorry, we, we haven't <laughs> actually talked about and discussed geography yet. We'll, we'll get there. I think we're actually recording that tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I mean, when this comes out, it will have been weeks ago. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so <laughs> apparently we've already talked about some of this stuff in this chapter in the future. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So she says, she says here too is a subject which should be to the child an inexhaustible storehouse of ideas should enrich the chambers of his house. Beautiful with a thousand tableau pathetic and heroic and should form in him insensibly principles whereby he will hereafter judge the behavior of nations and will rule his own conduct as one of a nation. Well, there's a thesis sentence yes. for you. <laughs> right? That this. really, really sets the sets the playing field there. Yeah. I wrote down in the margin of my book here, Moral Imagination, that one of the reasons why we teach history to children is to develop that in them, where she talks about the heroic and the pathetic here. So you're seeing men's good deeds, but we're not just presenting that to our kids. They also see the negative side of humanity. Yeah. Um, and being able to make, she talks about not giving them books where the opinions are very didactic, like they're having to think through those kind of things. And and that's, I think, kind of sometimes one of the challenges of having a living book, right? I'll read it to my kids and I'll say, so-and-so was a good man. And I'm like, <laughs> well, and we just read that, what he did wasn't, you know, there were some things that nowadays, especially if it's an older book, right? Yeah. We know that we wouldn't say those were good things, right? And so I say to my kids all the time, like, people aren't all good or all bad. What were some of the things that this person did that were heroic, right? What were some of the things that were like, mm, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I have those kind of discussions with them. And I think we're so afraid to let, as a culture, to let children think. You know, and mm-hmm. so because you can't put that on a test question. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're as homeschoolers, we have the amazing opportunity to allow them to express their thoughts and opinions about these people that live before us. And it's interesting. I'm not sure exactly where, but she talks about getting a firsthand uh, account. Yes. Whether it's somebody who was there or very close to that time so that they're not looking back at it with all the information that they have mm-hmm. um, as far mm-hmm. as history goes. But it's kind of the meandering uh, story-like telling of something that happened right around when that person's writing. Which is hard. I mean, I don't even do that with my kids. I mean, to talk about, she's talking about um, Bede's history of England. I mean, like, I would have a hard time. <laughs> I actually <laughs> didn't have to read, I didn't have to read that in college. It's a history <laughs> motto, but it was like, Wow, you know, having my children read that, like it's very, um, yeah, it's intense. <laughs> yeah, hard to hard to read. Yes. <laughs> so, so looking at that, but those in primary the sources, I think we, we would call that nowadays. You know, like um, having first can accounts of people that were there. You know, and it, it does get easier once you get to like modern times, right? But when you're studying like the Middle Ages, that's a little different. Getting those yeah. those firsthand accounts, yeah. Is, I'm sorry, what are you saying? Is that where having like a, a firsthand account that's been updated or modernized, like modern English, is is that even a thing yeah. where people would yeah. do that? 
Okay. I think so. Or having, you know, uh, I see like a living book for history is one that's written by an author who's passionate about the subject, you know, who is a historian who studies that, but they include a lot of source material from the people in the documents and things that were written at the time. I use a lot of those because, yeah, finding the firsthand sources can be tricky, except, you know, in modern times, you know, you can really... 1800s, 1900s, you know, find books that, for example, one of the books I include is like the narrative life of Frederick Douglass, like written by Frederick Douglass, like, you know, but kids, you know, they can understand that or in modern times, like The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, like those are people living during those times, writing about themselves. Okay, those are autobiographies, but there's still historians that were living during those times writing histories about what was happening at that time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Let's see, where does she go? She takes off and talks about the ways that history is horribly taught. <laughs> she talks about it bristling with dates. Outlines mischievous. I love that. How yeah. she t- they're mischievous. <laughs> and, and then again, um, where the, the child, the child uh, doesn't get the chance to think, like you were saying. Um, mm-hmm. And then the, yeah. there's the mistake... The fatal mistake is the notion that he must learn the outlines or a baby edition of the whole history of England or Rome. And she says, instead, linger on a a single person, a short period, Mm -hmm. until you are that person. You think the way that person thinks. You you know what's going on. You know what's going on in that time frame, in that setting. And I mean, I've read I've read a couple biographies recently, even President Roosevelt Read, Which one? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was one I got well, at the library. I mean, I mean which Roosevelt? Uh, Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. <laughs> and so he's, just... He's, he is a fascinating character. Yes. I mean, my, my son loved reading biographies about him. So he is the, all boy and loved learning about him. <laughs> the, the one I read did up until President McKinley was shot. And so it, it didn't okay. go into his presidency, right. but just it, it dove into the politics of the time and the, the way the conventions were. And and it, mm-hmm. it you, you you almost felt like you were there and, and yeah. experiencing that at the same time. Yeah. So. And you don't you don't get that. You don't get that from a textbook. No, <laughs> I never I never read a textbook and felt like I was there ever. <laughs> yeah, that never happened. Yeah. And I think. You know, she calls it a fatal mistake. I mean, those yeah. are some strong words. Like, she's very clear that this is <laughs> really detrimental to children. <laughs> Do you think it's fatal in that they will not learn and love history or fatal in that they won't learn anything? I think if, I don't know if this is just anecdotal. I mean, I, I can't, I don't know for sure what she was pointing at and I wouldn't want to try, but the for my own experiences, you know, like I was saying, like, even though my education of history was very poor because I grew up in a family that loved it, I still loved it too. So I don't think it, you know, it doesn't mean they're not going to learn it or they could learn it some other way. You know what I mean? But you are killing those ideas that there's no ideas to plant when it's just an outline. Right. Okay. (laughs) There. Yeah. You're, you know, she talks about, being filled with sawdust where we're filled with facts instead of ideas, you know, yeah. so we kind of look like we're full, like a scarecrow does, but 
there's not there's nothing to it. There's nothing living inside of a scarecrow. So we can fill our children up with a whole bunch of sawdust, and it looks like they are educated, right? <laughs> Interesting, right. but they I, won't. But they won't be people of substance. Yes, exactly. I, one of the things I see about history, and and you said it earlier. You said it uh, uh, was it the the moral imagination, moral imagination. imagination right. Thank you. Uh, is it without that? people have a hard time assessing their own situation and, and everything that's going on around them within. And that's the, one of the thing. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say within the grander context of history and well, this sounds like a good idea, but what are the ramifications further down the line? If we make this decision and if we go down that row or road and a lot of those decisions have, have already been made and you can see them play out through history and a lot of bad decisions that sounded good just weren't. And, and without a knowledge of history, you, you, you know, the, the anecdote is that you, you're deemed to repeat it if you don't know it. And, and I think that's true. And I, I think that might be one of the things she's hinting at here. Yes. She talks about that in um, volume six of philosophy of education. There's a section on the knowledge of man. It starts out with history, but she says, I've already spoken of history as a vital part of education and have cited the Council of Montague that the teacher shall, by the help of histories, inform himself of the worthiest minds that were in the best ages. To us, who in particular, who are living in one of the great epochs of history, it is necessary to know something of what has gone on before in order to think justly of what is occurring today. So volume six would have been written after World War One. Exactly. Right. So, you know, she's saying we have to know our history to understand the present. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the, the things that's interesting about this series of books is that they happened, they, 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 you know, the first, the first of them happened before and then the last happened after. Mm-hmm. So, so she has, I feel like she has a lot of grand ideas and, and she, she definitely talks about the German education system mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, any number of different times and in, in ways that, that seem a little backwards knowing now what we do. Mm-hmm. about what what came out of that education system. So it's it is interesting to me that her her last book is post World War 1 with a lot of that influence in it. So I'm excited to get to it and read that book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's what you're talking about with the fatal, right? Yeah. We can't understand our present. We can't be alive in where we are right now without understanding what's come before. Right. Mm-hmm. Good question though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She says, let him, let him, uh, let him on the contrary, linger pleasantly over the history of a single man. Did you already read that? I did read that. Okay. never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that even though he's just reading the life of one single man, he's getting intimately equated with the history of a whole nation for a whole age. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she says, so if we use this intelligent teaching of history, then we have to issue nearly all the history books written for children. <laughs> so you can just throw all those out. Yes. And also all compendiums, all outlines, all abstracts. Just yes. just toss them away. Just get rid of it all. <laughs> they are not attracted to the twaddle of reading made easy little history books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yep. There is not a word to be said in their favor. There are there are times where she does not pull punches. She oh, just, she cracks me up. That British sense of humor cracks me up. Yeah, she does not miss her words at all. She tells you exactly how she feels. She does. It kind of reminds me, like sometimes of the 
um, Dowager and Downton Abbey, I can just picture Charlotte Mason saying that, like, we're just going to get rid of them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's not worth, they're not worthy, you know? <laughs> um, and so I think she does really make a really good point that, you know, the, we have to have the proper books in order to accomplish this philosophy. Like yeah. you can't have the proper teaching of history without the proper books to go with it. Looking uh, kind of in our, our times right now, we are in, in the United States in a period of extreme tension and division and people whose voices historically have not been heard now have both platforms and ways of expressing other viewpoints. How much do you think reading different viewpoints of that same era is important? I think it's extremely important. And we are very blessed that we have books to use that are living that show that, whereas children before did not have those books to use. I think uh, I'm going to skip ahead, if that's okay, to answer Mm -hmm. the question on page 282 she was talking about how when we're reading like a living history book, it, it stirs up inside of us. Let me try to find it. These are just the right thing for children whose eager souls want to get at the living people behind the words of the history book, caring nothing about at all about progress or statutes or about anything but the persons for whose actions history is to the child's mind, no more than a convenient stage. And I wrote in, um, I margined the word empathy. So when we read a textbook, right, I don't ever feel connected to the people that I'm reading about, like, or care, really. But when I read a living book and I can picture them in my mind, they become human to me. And that's what we want for our children is for them to realize, like, these were real people going through real things. And what happens it was a study I read. It was so interesting. They were looking at college students' brains and what happened to them when they were reading like a textbook and they measured their hormones and everything. And then they had them read like a narrative book on whatever the subject was. I can't remember, but their brains just lit up in all these different places when they were reading a living book about the subject. And then they measured their hormones. And one of the hormones that was released was oxytocin which is the bonding chemical when yeah. you, you know, have a baby. And so our bodies release that when we're reading narrative stories, we make connections to the people in the story that we're reading about. And so I think stories have the power to transform our hearts and give us compassion for people that we might not understand where they're coming from, right? My kids will never know what it's like to be a different race than what they are. Mm-hmm. But by reading stories and putting themselves in those people's place, they can build that empathy. I might not completely understand it, right? But I have a better concept of what that might be like. So one of the books that I read for my curriculum was called A Mighty Long Way. It's the story of the Little Rock Nine. And I remember reading it and just weeping. Mm. You know, I had read about Civil Rights Movement, Little Rock Nine, like in my high school textbooks and in college, like it was, you know, I knew about it. But until you live through that person and see their eyes, what it would be like to be treated like that terribly on a daily basis in school or have your house bombed or be afraid for your family. Like, I mean, it totally opened my eyes in a whole new way that I would have never experienced otherwise. It, mm. it becomes a real thing with real people rather than just a, a 
line item on an, a, a timeline or an a, event. That's, like, it could be like, yeah. what city in Arkansas did this happen? You know, a test question, right? Like, that doesn't connect me to that person yeah. at all or teach me anything about what their viewpoint would have been like. Um, another book that we read was called um, Brown Girl Dreaming. It's a series of poems by Jacqueline Woodson. And she actually came and spoke at my town. And we, I took my kids there. And the book actually was written in my city. Like she grew up here in the civil rights time period um, for a little bit before they moved to New York. And so they just had people sharing what it was like to grow up in South Carolina in the 60s and the way they were segregated and treated. And, you know, you have grown women crying because as a kid, they weren't allowed to go to the pool and how storekeepers, you know, spit on them and stuff. And it was so eye-opening for me and my kids, like, to have that connection to actual real people. So, I mean, I just think stories are so powerful and we are blessed to live in a time where we can find those resources, right? Yeah. (laughs) Like you said, that she didn't have in her day, you know? Yeah. Well, because a lot has been written and a a lot of history has happened over the last hundred years. I mean, it it might sound presumptuous for someone to say who's lived only now, but there's a whole lot that's happened in the last hundred years. (laughs) Yeah. Well, even even with the ramp up of technology, there's been so many changes that happen where life used to be for dec or for centuries life was essentially relatively the same mm-hmm. yeah it's and speeding up <laughs> exactly <Yeah>. so <laughs> yeah and she talks in here about how our early on page 281 about how an early history of a nation is better fitted for children mm-hmm. and i think that's one of the key distinctives of how she does approach history of not starting back at the beginning with ancient history with young children and I th- and that was kind of how I always taught, you know, in schools, we do like the community helpers and like, who's the mayor of your town? And like, we start off with that. <laughs> and so that was just natural for me. And then I got into the whole homeschool world. And it's like, oh, no, if you don't start back with Genesis, they're never going to understand like what's happening and what the order is. And I'm like, really? Because my kids, like, they have no concept of time. Like, they'll be like, yeah. yes, tomorrow I went to see <laughs> grandma. And it was like a month ago. You know, you're like, what? <laughs> uh-huh. I, I've so, heard like, I've heard that doesn't happen until eleven ish. That abstract that that timeline. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so it's like you no know, kids are concrete, and you see this with all a lot of her subjects, right? With math, with geography, like you're going to talk about. Like you start with what the kids know in nature, like sciences, what they can see and feel and touch, and then you move to the abstract as their development happens. So it's very child appropriate, but. Same thing with history, right? Like, I live here. This is my flag and this is my town. And even if I want to go back to, like, what it would have been like when it first kind of started in that heroic age, Mm -hmm. right? I can still kind of – I have a concept of what it is to be an American and then grow out and study the rest of the world as my mind grows along with it, if that makes sense, which I think is a very unique way of studying history, plus the way that she does multiple streams at one time where you're learning about – you know, what's happening in the history of your own country, plus other countries, plus ancient history. Like that is, I've never seen that anywhere else, Mm. but she doesn't get into that in home education. Like that comes, that comes later. later. But yeah. Well, Uh, I I like this whole, the story is on a few broad, simple lines, not the, you know, the immediate, the exact 
things that are happening or even the rationale behind it. It's just the broad story so that the older books are easier and pleasanter because they don't deal with that dignity of history. They they purl along pleasantly as a forest brook to just tell you all about it mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to the kind of almost for feeding you the rationale, the the whys. They're just like, well, we're just going to tell you about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's like, come along on this little trip, you know, as we pleasantly stroll back through time. You know? <laughs> so she it then sounds- goes, go ahead. I was going to say, it sounds so much more pleasant than like, open your bucket so I can fill you with all this information. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. true. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Here, have some dates. <laughs> yeah. So then she goes into a bunch of recommendations about... Yes, these old books. Yes. Certain books, certain <laughs> old books, and kind of goes into what they talked about and a lot of British history. Yes. Are these books that you currently use, for example, in your curriculum, or is this... No. Let's, <laughs> that's what I was saying. Like, the Ecclesiastical History of England might be, like, that's, like, I read that in college. Uh-huh. Like, that's, um, yeah, very meaty book but one of the first chroniclers of history so it's extremely fascinating you know it's one of the first people to write down english history and but it is it is fascinating and it, and it has been really neat to study british history so i obviously didn't learn that in school and didn't even start it when i first started homeschooling so once i started kind of unpacking how she approached history including that at the same time that we're doing american history has been quite fascinating Hmm. just seeing the different perspectives so it also shows you that like there's different ways to view what happened right there's (laughs) (laughs) there's always there's two sides sides, at least two yes (laughs) and um and i actually wrote a canadian version of my curriculum too and so i was reading some of the books like so particularly about like the war of 1812 well they Mm -hmm. have a whole different viewpoint of that (laughs) yeah Um, yeah And so, yes, but also just seeing how far back, I mean, because British history is so much richer, like it just goes back further. And so seeing how the different events have built upon each other and the way, um, you know, the whole world, you know, the colonialism of Britain was much more expansive, too. So it wasn't just the American colonies, you know, it really on a worldwide scale and seeing then how that affected future events has been really kind of it's been really neat. Hmm. That would be interesting. That would be really yeah. It's not just an insular view of your own country, you know. Even though that's what right. they're starting with, right? It does expand pretty quickly to other places. So, mm-hmm. well, that's really cool. That's exciting to hear. I'm I'm now excited for our children to to <laughs> get a little bit older so that they can so that they can start learning that so that I can too. Yeah. <laughs> so you can hear all about it as a dinner table. Yeah. So I can hear all about yes. it and we yes. can have fun conversations <laughs> about things. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, then she goes on to say that with these older stories and she talks about the Crusades, right? And King Alfred and um, (laughs) some familiar stories that we all probably know, too. But she says the child's imagination is aglow. His mind is teeming with ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really the whole purpose here of teaching history is these living ideas and this moral imagination like I was talking about. They get these through these these stories, and then she says, afterwards, you may yeah. put any doll outlines into their hands and they will make history for themselves. 
So it's not that they're never going to learn that the Battle of Hastings took place mm-hmm. in 1066, right? Like, you know, those things, they will get them, but it will actually mean something. So I memorized that, like in fifth grade. I don't even remember what grade it was, right? It meant absolutely nothing to me. <laughs> I just, it was must have been some catchy song or something like that because I still remembered it. And then I'm teaching my kids out of our island story and reading about, you know, William the Conqueror. And he was so big and bloated when he died, they couldn't fit him into the coffin and they had to stuff him into it. And then like his stomach exploded <laughs> from like, I mean, it was like nasty stuff, which my nine-year-old son thought was the coolest day uh-huh. ever, right? Um, and, um, but, you know, and just reading all about him and it was very interesting, but like, now that had meaning like yeah the battle of hastings what was you know but now it, i can relate to a person and a story and i'm never gonna be able to get that mental picture out of my head so um <laughs> you know when you're giving your kids these stories well the, yeah later on those dates and timelines and reigns will make sense and they'll have yeah. meaning to them because they're they're connecting it to an idea that they already have when you just have a, a fact it means it means nothing right which I think goes back to other other parts where she's like, no, just the memorization of useless facts without their informing idea is not the way children learn naturally. Right. And right. and again, most yeah. all of this is based. It's back to the the introduction. She sets forth a method of education based on natural law based on her observations, based mm-hmm. on what she knows about the way people learn, especially children learn. Yes. And, and that's, again, that's why this makes so much sense, why her method <laughs> just makes so much sense. It does. So I read I read that last sentence, and it made me think about when I what happens when I look at a Star Wars timeline. Because <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time reading Star Wars books. And at this point, at now, I see a timeline and say, all right, mm. movie, movie, movie. And you see a couple books. And, oh, yeah, that happened then. And that was a thing. And, and you know, that's how I look at Star Wars history. So it would be really cool uh, to be able to see, like, actual real history <laughs> in the same way. Not a fictional history. Not, not a fictional fake history that's fake. <laughs> yeah. long, well, no, I mean, it was a long time ago. So it was it was real, but... But it was a long mm-hmm. time ago, um, <laughs> but yeah. So so even then, I, I mean, that's that's totally fictional. But but I I think the idea the idea holds the same is that that because I spent so much time reading about people and reading about events that happened, you put it on a timeline and and it, it the, and it the timeline itself comes to life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, that's just true. get your kids reading books about real things, not Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> So she talks about a bunch of other books, The Age of Myths, and things to read for those. Yeah, and I think that's really important. She says, but every nation has its heroic age before authentic history begins. There were giants in the land in those days, and the child wants to know about them. He has every right to revel in such classic classic myths as we possess as a nation. You know, and we, we can sometimes think like, oh, those are just frivolous little stories, right? Like... Was there really King Arthur and all the <laughs> Merlin and, you know, like, we don't obviously don't have those people here. But like, you know, I think of our own history and the Native American myths and American folktales and things that are like, well, that's just silly stuff. That's not real. Right. That's mm-hmm. not real history. But it is. It 
presents a time and it does capture their imagination. Yeah. Hmm. My kids asked me, was that, was that true? Did that really happen? I was like, well, there was probably somebody like that. And the stories have been built up around them. We just finished Robin Hood. So mm-hmm. there probably was somebody, maybe even named Robin, who yeah. who did this thing. And then the stories grew and and they they loved it. So Yeah, right. <laughs> it's hard it's hard to be like, yes, this is true. No, this is not true. This is where where it's kind of a nebulous thought like that. Yes. And and it's interesting because that's what they're starting with, right? But young children, they love fairy tales and myths yeah, and do. things that and she does talk a lot about that. Um, you know, I I've I've gotten pushback from people about including fairy tales and myths and things. And um she does talk a lot about the importance of that and developing their imagination. She talks about the habit it's a habit of building a child's imagination. Like that's how much she viewed it as important. So mm-hmm. Well, I think it's it's important to be able to think outside the box. And it's important to be able to see events and 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 realize that that either they are or aren't grounded in reality. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think there's I think there's value in that. So I I, I, th- I you know, I I agree with the fact that that she includes it in her <laughs> curriculum. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And then um, she talks about Plutarch's lives, which is interesting because later on she'll she'll include that as citizenship instead of in history. Huh. In the programs, it actually shows up as citizenship, but here she's talking about it in the history chapter. But again, it goes back to that concept of that we're not being moralistic in saying, you know, when we're teaching them, we're allowing them to see the good and the bad of humanity. It's not this cleaned up little version of history where everybody holds hands and sings Kumbaya. Like there's actually really hard things. And there's people who, um, you know, Alexander the great who did things that are somewhat honorable. Right. And Mm -hmm. did a lot of really bad things. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of of really bad things. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and towards the end of this section, it says, we get the sort of vivid graphic presentation, which makes history as real to the child as are the adventures of Robinson Crusoe. So it it, it pulls it all back to it makes it real. It makes it vivid. Right. Well, and, yeah. and she's talked earlier that children have children have an uncanny understanding of of people. And and I think children have a knowledge that not everybody does good all the time. And so if you present them, they don't, because they don't, because they don't, because they don't. And and children have, a, I mean, on a, on a mental level, children have a hard time thinking that anybody else thinks differently than they do. Like their thoughts are just everyone else's thoughts because, well, we're all that way. And so children know that they're bad. And, and Charlotte, she talked about that in, in volume two at some point that the children know that they're bad. They know that they do bad things. They know that they're not totally good. That's a thing that children understand. And so, if if you're just telling a child a story about someone who always does a good thing, that's not a real person. And they right. know that. <laughs> right. <laughs> like that's I, so so you you would you almost have to tell them about the flaws and the faults of a person and the things that they did wrong and they did bad. Because then the person is real. 
And without that, mm-hmm. it's it's just a it's a made up story about a perfect person, which is not a thing. Right. And, you know, we try to make well, if children have these heroes that are inspiring and, you know, these like great American leaders, you know, we, we don't want them to know the faults because then they might fall off their pedestal and not be a great hero to our children. I'm like, that doesn't make a hero. A hero is the person, you know, who's overcome adversity. A, right. a hero is the person who overcome their natural temptation to sin and made good choices and, you know, was a good leader. And that's not, that doesn't mean they're perfect, right? But they right. were still able to do amazing things despite the fact that they were human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, it, and especially in the, in the culture that we're seeing develop in, in, in the collegiate world and starting to spill out into, into everything else. But, but you've got all of the, the ideas of, of uh, cultural correctness and, and everybody has to be right all the time and you can never say anything wrong. And it, it, mm-hmm. it's just, there's a, there's a whole lot of it out there. And, and so to have children understand that, yes, you can mess up mm-hmm. and we all do. And when you do, just like the, just like our great heroes in history, when they messed up, they, they kept going and they tried to do right the next time. And so you as a person, when you mess up and when you just do something wrong, you admit it, you, you own that you did the thing that was bad and wrong. And, and then you move forward and you, you try and do better. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a, that's a huge important lesson that, that not everyone's getting right now. And I think it is, you know, we said, we talked about it's, it's fatal earlier. I think that's another, I think that's another part that is fatal is that children who don't learn that their heroes have flaws don't understand that you can have flaws and still be a great person. Mm-hmm. Yes. And do great things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like Alexander the Great here. Right. I mean, he did, he took over like the whole known world. Right. Yeah. It's pretty impressive. That's I mean, not great, but like <laughs> just really impressive. <laughs> you yeah. have to be a pretty darn good leader. At some point, oh, yeah, accomplish those things, right? Oh, the, he was I, also very evil, but yes, well, militarily wise, a genius. <laughs> oh, he was he was a he was a brilliant strategist. Yes, and he and he had to be charismatic too, just to get a bunch of people to yes. follow him the way they did. Yes, <laughs> but yeah, if you read this as an example from Plutarch's Life's in here, you know, you can picture yourself kind of there yeah. and mm-hmm. the story, and kind of see. What what his character is like by the things that he's saying here, and the fact that Plutarch's life is extremely difficult to read, even the <laughs> North's translation that she recommends here, um, it's not. And I, I think it shows what a high view she has of children, that she would include a book like that for children to read. Yeah. Well, I think, I think also, and I'm going to ask a, a follow up question to this, but I think a lot of it has to do with what she says on page 281. Given judicious skipping and a great or and a good deal of free paraphrasing that mothers yeah. are so ready at, <laughs> the children may be taken through the first few volumes of a well-written illustrated popular history of England. And I think that applies to other things as well. So they're not necessarily getting the exact text of these things at this young age. But where the mother it's it's being filtered through the mother. Well, especially Plutarch's lives, because some of those are a little scandalous. So, can, so yeah, there's part, can you, parts you want to uh, ad lib or, you know, but I do that when I read the, I mean, reading the Bible to my kids, there's, you know, I'm not yeah. going to read about Tamar. Like, I'm going to skip that part. Like, there's going to be certain <laughs> things I'm going to kind of go, oh, okay, yeah, moving on. Uh-huh, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So Plutarch's lives. The first time I heard of Plutarch was in Charlotte Mason circles. 
Did, oh, yeah, because nobody they, else really talks about him. <laughs> were were they huh. or are they history? Are they state like statesmen? Like how how are they actually written? Like what what does it actually look like? Well, there's like a Greek. There'll be a Greek life and then a Roman life. And so you really are going through and getting your history as well. But because of the fact, like we were saying, it does show their characters. I think that's why she moved it to citizenship. And it focuses on one specific person One specific time? person, each chapter, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or, or a Greek person or the, the Roman um, kind of similar person, if that makes sense. And that they're not all great people mm-hmm. that he includes in there. But it's funny, and this happens all the time with what I learned about Charlotte Mason, then I start to see it everywhere. <laughs> like I'll be reading something else and some author will quote Petrarch's lives and um, I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I guess it was more popular than, <laughs> I mean, obviously nowadays it's not, but mm-hmm. um, would have been something that um, a person of education would have been familiar with, you know, or could have referenced. Interesting. If such. But okay. I've seen it quoted in other literary things that I've been reading now. <laughs> huh. It's it's always funny how that, that happens where you yeah. see, so- <laughs> you read something, you learn something, and then you can spot it in other places. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think that does really give them a foundation, too, for future historical and literary studies to kind of have that foundation of some of the lives that he's included because they are referenced in other places. Yeah. Even if they are challenging. Um, and then she talks, you know, some more about the history books that we include. You know, she says, again, that it's know as much as they may about one short period is far better for children than to know the outlines of all history. And I hear that all the time, like my kids are going to have gaps in their history knowledge. I'm like, have you met a person who doesn't like (laughs) there's, it's the whole world here, you know, for hundreds of, there's all kinds of things I have no clue about. Uh Right. Like, (laughs) yeah, just, you know, yeah. Taking that time to dwell on one period can kind of seem like, Oh, are we going to be able to fit this all in? Like, Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> but there, especially the way she has it structured, where you're going to cycle back through the different time periods again. So it's not like I tell people all this all the time, like, well, we didn't finish all the book, and you know, I, I don't know if we can end the year. Like, should we keep going, or should we stop and go on to the next book? And I'm like, it's not like your kids are never going to learn about the Mayflower ever again. Like, you know, like there's. <laughs> It's going to keep up. coming up. Yeah. And you're, they're <laughs> going to learn it more in depth in high school. Like it's, you know, they're going to keep going. And even the parts that you may not have really even touched on, right. Might become something that they're spurned to learn about later on Yeah, and go more in depth. And then you ever would have naturally, like once they start developing the kind of their own interests yeah, and the different time periods that they're really into, like they're going to, pick up on that on their own like the day i went in my 12 year old's room and she's on the computer and i'm like it's not screen time what are you doing get off the computer <laughs> and she's on youtube and i'm like what are you watching are you watching like those minecraft video game things <laughs> she's like no mom um you know i was reading a book a couple of days ago about pompeii and it sounded really interesting so i found this bbc documentary and i'm like oh okay oh well all right then <laughs> just keep oh. on watching <laughs> Hmm. Ways to get around screen time rules. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, she, she was very smart. She knew how to totally trick me. Like, oh, I okay. that would so but, work on me. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. But yeah, once they develop their own interests in things, they'll keep going more in depth too into things that 
they find interesting. You know? mm-hmm. So let me, let me ask a question then uh, almost directly related. So one of the things that I find interesting is that Charlotte Mason was writing before visual media, be, visual media became a thing. And even before readily available audio media became a thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> is, is, is stuff like videos on YouTube or, or BBC documentaries or anything like that. Do you see that there's a place for that in the curriculum that you do uh, as, as either something major or as supplemental information? Uh, How much, how much value do you see in that? Oh, I think they're extremely valuable. I mean, I love watching them. Right. But I don't think they can ever replace the living book, you know, and that's why us Charlotte Mason moms are like knocking each other over at used book sales to like get these books that are going out of print and stuff because, you know, there's just, there's nothing, there's nothing to replace those kind of things. And, And studies have shown that too, that you retain so much more from what you read out of a real book than you do from a screen. So there's much more active learning happening in your mind when you're reading it than right. when you're watching a documentary, it is more passive. So she follows into narration and how the child mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. can narrate the books. Is narrating a documentary something that would be beneficial oh, to yeah. help continue that? And that's what she says. She's like, you know, narration is something that people have naturally done since they were created. So why would we not use this as a tool for education? Mm-hmm. Like, duh, right? Like, <laughs> this is what we do when we know something, when we're excited about something, we learned about something, we go tell somebody about it. Like, yeah. so why not use that as a way? Cause that shows that you know it. Right. Um, and so even little children will narrate to you the Dora episode that they just watched or they will, is Dora yeah. even a show. I don't know what people watch now, but a uh, Paw Patrol or whatever it is. Right. It's, you know, it's like, stinky and dirty <laughs> in our house. That's so true. Okay, I never heard of that one. So yeah, I'm, my <laughs> kids are beyond those shows, um, but you know, they'll come and tell you or a movie that they saw or what they did at grandma's house. Right. Like yeah. that's a natural part of human beings. We're meant to connect through conversation and stories. And so, yeah, whether it's what they're reading or what they're watching, you know, telling someone about it is a great way to retain kind of the information, but also make it your own. And I like that she says, what she says about narrations here is so key. She says, these narrations are never a slavish reproduction of the original. A child's individuality plays about what he enjoys. The story comes from his lips, not precisely as the author tells it, but with a certain spirit and coloring, which express the narrator. By the way, it is very important that children should be allowed to narrate in their own way and she not be pulled up or helped with words and expressions from the text. A narration should be original as it comes from the child that is his own mind should have acted upon the matter it receives. So I love that, especially when it has to do with history, because we can get so concerned with, oh, well, they didn't get that exact name of that river, <laughs> right? That, uh, you know, George Washington's army was crossing there so i i might want to interrupt them while they're narrating and correct that because oh that'd be terrible if they got that river name wrong you know like where they got the whole point of the whole rest of the story mm-hmm. which was yeah. that they had the surprise attack and you know all this other stuff that's what's important that's what they're going to remember and they make their own and with history i love it because i see it with my kids they get especially my son right and any battle scene, anytime there's blood or somebody dying or something like that, like <laughs> his narrations are acted out with weapons from the garage and, you know, very dramatically. And so uh-huh. it that, but that's him. 
that's his personality, right? So he's making it his own. Whereas my daughter is just focusing on how the person was feeling and what happened next. And, you know, it's like mm-hmm. they're, they're totally night and day different, right? But they're talking about the same thing. Right. But they've made that their own and their personalities come out through the narrations, which just crack me up. And now that they're older, like looking back, like I videotape their exams. So I'll ask them, you know, tell me about Abraham Lincoln's childhood or whatever. And, you know, going back and like watching those little videos with their sweet little voices, it's so precious, you know, and it's like, and it's so cute, but um, yeah, they make it their own. And someday that's a really special thing to be able to look back at. Let's do that. Right. Videotape exams. I like that idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I'm going to kind of skip a little bit because she's talking about a lot of more of the books and again, not, Summaries, don't do that. Get the main idea, the portrait. And I'll come back to this dates one, but the narration of the illustrations okay, where yes. you mm-hmm. have, you know, the story is read and then mm-hmm. the child narrates through picture. And she goes into, you know, a nine year old and then another person and the, another girl who's older and they're all narrating the same story but mm-hmm. they all have vastly different things that they pull from it mm-hmm. whether it's um the picture of julius caesar uh, mounted on a chariot or antony making his speech after the death or it's the calpurnia begging caesar not to go and this other one is in the brutus and portia in the orchard with the south wall of red brick and just all of these various different things that the person, the the child pulls out and mm-hmm. internalizes and puts on paper. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. it's so interesting. Yeah, I, I I love that idea too. That's been really helpful. It was really helpful for my kids, especially when they were younger, to um, have them illustrate while I would read. And that also helps if you have multiple children all narrating the same text. So I get that question a lot. Like, what do I do if I'm reading the same story to three kids and they all have to narrate, right? Because you don't want like kid two to repeat what kid one just said, right? (laughs) Like, are they actually listening and making it their own? But if they're drawing a picture and they just tell you about their picture, well, like she gives these examples of four different pictures based on the same exact story that are all vastly different, right? So they're going to tell you about their picture. It's going to be very different than what their brother or sister got out of that story as well. So drawing, um, I found really helps. It also has really helped. One of the things that we do, um, we don't do it as much anymore as my kids were getting older, but when we first started narrating was I bought like the comic strip kind of books. Mm, that Like you would use their blank pages. You can buy them on Amazon with all the different squares in them. And then my kids would just draw little stick people or stick things to help them remember what was happening as I read the story. And then when they narrated, they would go back to the beginning picture and kind of walk through um, the story, which is really great if they're narrating history or Aesop's fables or something like that. That's very Pilgrim's Progress. We use it for that. That's very like narrative and fashion to help them sequence events. So I have two kids with ADHD and it was really hard for them to sequence their narrations at first. They would just like pick. They would usually just either start at the very end of what I just read or they would just kind of jump back and forth. 
And so trying to get them to start at the beginning and give me a sequential narration was really hard. And so having them just draw these little stick pictures in the comic books, and then they could go back and talk about the pictures kind of really helped build that skill. They don't really need that anymore. They're able to go back and tell me pretty much on their own now. But Would they not like get stuck on drawing the picture and stop listening? No. I mean, you look at the pictures and you're like, what in the world is that a picture of? Like, because <laughs> it makes I, I, absolutely no sense to me, right? It's just like little stick thing moving on, you know. I, and I told them that, like, this isn't a drawing lesson. Like, just what comes into your head that you can remember and, you know. But there might be some kids who would, but I didn't write I, I feel like that, that I would do that. I would be like, okay, I need to get this down. I, I even do it when I'm taking, you know, notes of the sermon. Like, I'm <laughs> yeah. writing this down. Oh, I missed the next point because I was writing it <laughs> yeah. down. So, yeah, maybe. and it didn't, I guess that might be a mental hang up for me, you know, just give it to them and make them or let them go with it and yeah. see where it goes. Well, and, and probably also, like you said, be, be, be upfront with them and, and then be okay with them having pictures that are absolutely illegible to you where they look at it and be like, <laughs> yeah, those, those five lines that means something. Like, okay, cool. Exactly. I'm glad that means something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just to help them. It's not It's not like what she's talking about here, a beautiful drawing of the scene, right? We do that too. Right. But th- that was just something that was really helpful. I'm just sharing that for people mm-hmm. who might need it. For our kids who are dyslexic or have some learning disabilities or ADHD, to be able to help sequence narrations is a very hard skill. It can be for some kids. Yeah, yeah. I can. I could see that. I could definitely see that. That's a That's a really cool idea. I like that. And then, you know, do take the time. I try to do it like once a week where they'll take the time to draw out a scene from something that we've been reading this week. Not necessarily history. It could be whatever they want. And and draw a more detailed, pretty nice picture that I'm going to put in a portfolio and keep. <laughs> okay. So, you know, there's a difference between those and doodling to help you remember stuff. Right. And I love to hear that she talks about playing at history. Mm-hmm. She says, children have other ways of expressing the concepts that fill them when they are duly fed. They play at their history lessons, dress up, make tableau, act scenes, or they have a stage and their dolls act. While they paint the scenery and speak the speeches, there is no end to the modes of expression children find where there is anything in them to express. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've seen that so much with my kids. They play at history all the time. I mean, it just cracks me up sometimes. Like one day they were all dressed up and I'm like, what are you guys and I can hear them all talking funny. And I'm like, what are you doing? And it was um, Adolf Hitler and Frida Kylo oh. uh, together. <laughs> so, all right. Oh, okay, cool. I'm sure that would have happened. And, um, you know, my son, especially, you know, American Revolutionary War, Civil War, any battle scene, right? They're going to go outside and play that. Like, <laughs> you better believe it. With his little boyfriends and their nerf, you know, they're going to make some surprise attack and they're going to, you know, do whatever it was that they were rooting about that day. Yeah. He's going to go tell them all about when the conqueror's stomach exploding and, you know, they're going <laughs> to act all that out in their play. And, and I encourage parents a lot with that because I think we can sometimes worry like, are they really paying attention or your child's narration might just be terrible. You're mm. like, te- they said like two words and you're like, Oh, well, okay. There goes that history lesson for the day. <laughs> and then, like weeks later, I'll hear them talking to their friends about the very thing that I didn't think they were paying any attention to. Huh. Sometimes those ideas just take days where they need the time 
alone for them to grow yeah. and they'll come out when you're not around. So that goes back to the long, that goes back to the long range viewpoint of this yeah. yes, where, exactly. where you, you can't see the fruit right away. It might be days, months, weeks, yeah. Yeah, years definitely. later. Yeah. And just how important it is for children to play. Yeah. Like yeah. that this isn't a waste of time. It isn't like, Oh, if we can fit it in, I can let them play. No, like that is how children learn and express and how their neurons are connecting is through working out the ideas out with people in play. Um, And they're learning how to have social skills and negotiate Mm -hmm. and change what you're doing. And yeah, so that's not an add on to the school day. No, play play is an important integral part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like I like what she continues at here. She says the mistake we make is to suppose that the imagination is fed by nature or that it works on the inspired diet of children's storybooks. Let them have the meat he requires in his story in his history readings and in the literature which nat- which naturally gathers round this history. An imagination will bestir itself without any help of ours. The child will live out in detail a thousand scenes of which he only gets the merest hint. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. They, they, you, you don't need to give them fluff to try and have them know a thing. You want to give them the meat of it so that they can go play it out and then, and then they'll, they'll, they'll learn it. Yeah. And the point that Nat, that literature and history go together. She talks about that too Yeah. later on in um, her works and that history, she called it like the wheel that the, his, the curriculum turns around. Right. And not that we're creating like unit studies. She talks about against that and another book where she's talking about Robinson Crusoe. It's not like, and we're going to learn about ships and how they were made. And we're going to do some math (laughs) lessons on how far away this ship is from that. You know, like that's arbitrary and that doesn't make any sense to children. They like to solve puzzles just as much as we do. They want to develop those connections themselves. And that's what they're going to learn. Not when we make the connections for them, which as a, as a teacher, I'm just gonna be honest, was really hard for me when I started homeschooling because one of the, the fun because I enjoy doing puzzles. So one of the funnest things about being a teacher was planning and developing all these unit studies where everything fit together and it came together and it was all so cute. And I was like, I'm such a good teacher. But then it was like uh, when I read it in her volumes, I'm like, oh my goodness, yeah, I'm taking that joy away from my kids. They yeah. want to be able to do that for themselves. And so yep. but literature and history do naturally tie together. And there's so many amazing historical fiction and biographies and things that you can incorporate during the literature time as well, which will also enhance what you're doing in history. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So just to jump back a tiny bit to the top of page 292 is dates. So she's been saying, you know, we don't need the summaries. We don't need the timelines. And then she has this section here about dates and making a timeline. Is this the book of centuries or is this like a, a different type of timeline? So, yes, they've her timeline things kind of evolved here. But I think what she's talking about here is what we would call a century chart. So it's this paper and you're dividing it into columns as opposed to like a book here. So she did have those tool tools, a century chart it would be like a hundred year period, obviously. And it has like little squares And then they kind of have symbols that mean different things. So like a crown would be like a royal person was born or an ax would be there was a battle. Okay. Um, And that way you can see the hundred years in like a visual picture of it. 
but yeah, so but the book of centuries does come later in her works and it was included in her programs as well. And she does see here too that we do not need to trouble ourselves at present with more exact dates. So here they're just kind of learning in about the proper time period what was you know, when did that happen? You know, it's not huh. uh Queen Elizabeth died in sixteen oh three. It's like in the sixteen hundreds. Okay. You know, Queen yeah. Elizabeth died and she you know, this also happened and Jamestown was founded and you know, like those kind of things are all Right. To to group to group events on that timeline, but not not care so much about the specificity of it. A certain year. Yeah. Right. And you see that with the book of centuries too, because it'll be like a 20 or 10 year or decade on a page and they have a page and they can kind of write when things happened. And then the other page is more like for, so it'd be a page with lines on one side, like the left side. And then the right side would be a blank page. And that's to draw things that relate to that time period, like the artifacts, the clothing that people had, what the buildings look like. So it's like a visual, she says that in here, like a visual rep presentation so she says we'll suggest a graphic panorama to the child's mind okay this is yeah this is more of a timeline thing but she goes in more depth into what she was talking about here in her other work so okay yeah i think we tried it confusing but she did have those two things essentially and that was something that came later again little children don't have that sense of time she did no. talk about children making a timeline of their own lives so they can understand that like i was born you know, and then two years later, baby sister came. And then, you know, now I'm eight and I can do, you know, like they can have a timeline of their own life. But beyond that, they're not going to understand that 500 years ago, this thing happened before this thing happened. Right. right. <laughs> Again. Right. Okay. So the book of centuries, she didn't even start that till like around age 11. Okay. And so this timeline about, is where they, where they develop that ability to think abstractly about time. Sure. And then they would start doing that as well. Yeah. And the history chart would be something that, um, you know, you would do depending on the time period that you were learning. And most of the time, you know, you're, except for ancient history, which covered more like the British history was broken down into those centuries that they learned. The book of centuries really is something very helpful when they start learning about multiple streams of history. <laughs> to help keep track of, okay, this is what was happening in America. This is what's happening in England. But then I'm going to go back, you know, a thousand years when I'm doing my Roman studies. Okay. This is what happened. It's way back in this book. <laughs> okay. So this isn't all happening at the same time. People are like, well, how are they, did they get confused? Like, okay, this is what's happening in Greek history, but this is what's happening in the American revolution. I'm like, no, like <laughs> you know, these dudes are wearing togas and doing this stuff. And, you know, <laughs> Not related at all, um, but having the Book of Centuries helps kind of give them a visual picture of the differences of the sure. times. And that that was a book that they would have had their whole schooling. Okay. So that's really neat. It's one of the few, like her other notebooks, like nature journals and commonplace books, like you would do it, you would fill it up, and then you'd be done and you'd get a new one, right? Whereas like the Book of Centuries would be something that they would have starting from age 11, like their whole lives, really, if they wanted to. And so it's really neat. For like my kids to go back and go, why did I put that there? Like, why did I think? <laughs> why was that important? Why do you think that event huh. was important? You know, like, and right. that gives a really good discussion. You know, as they get older, be like, why did I draw a picture of that? You know, like, <laughs> huh? That's interesting. To see how time, you know, change people and people change with those visual pictures um, yeah. is really neat too. So it's different. It's not like a timeline. Like, and I, 
and I loved me some timeline. Like, let me tell you, I'm <laughs> so cute. And I cut out all these little figures. And you know who's doing all the work for that timeline? You. Me, right? So, so uh, who's my the kids one weren't who doing it. it. <laughs> they weren't making it their own. And right. so that's what's really cool about the Book of Centuries. They pick what what event from what you learned about in history this week do you want to learn the date of and put in here? Yeah. They might not pick something that I thought was super important, right? Right. <laughs> they might not draw a picture of something that I thought, you know, like boy, my boy, you know, it's always World War II tanks and it, it, it doesn't matter what time period, some weapon, right? You know, yeah. like, uh-huh. okay. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. that, so he, but he, it, he made it his own. Again, it's this right. principle of children are born persons. So everything, the narrations and this book of centuries, it all goes together of making it their own. So well, awesome. that helps explain all that. That's interesting. I, yeah. I can't say that I knew what the book of centuries was <laughs> 10 minutes ago. Yeah, it's, it's hard to describe it. It's hard to describe it without a picture. Like I want to like show you, but I can't. <laughs> this is audio. Uh, so, right. Not, yeah. not, uh, not useful for an audio medium. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. But look it up. It's really cool. And the century charts are, you can see those on, um, in her programs, like on Ambleside online, they have, you know, pictures of those that you can see from students of hers that are really cool. So you can kind of see okay. what they look like. Too. Very cool. Yeah. We'll have, to, we'll have to look that up. Yeah. Well, awesome. That brought us through the end of history. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the end of history. There's no more. <laughs> it's all done. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, that was great. Yeah. I hope that was helpful. Oh, man. That was, that was awesome. Well, I'm so. Uh, this is great. Thank you. Thank you so much for for. Joining I'm amazed. Us. I'm amazed. I was actually coherent because this is it's late. It's, it's way pretty late over there. Yeah. <laughs> I told my daughter, I'm like, please pray. I actually can form sentences. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did awesome, and thank you so much for staying up late with us. Well, it was so nice to meet you guys. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me to come on. Yeah. Thank you so much it. for joining us. This was great. Thanks for listening. Don't forget about the Charlotte Mason-inspired online conference. If you're interested in receiving the recorded audio and video, please find info at any of our social media places, our website, or our emails. We hope to see you there.